All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather together as your children, to submit to your word, to desire your spirit, to fill us and teach us. We ask that you open our eyes and open our hearts today with a special message you have for us planned from eternity past. And most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish the greatest work possible on our behalf so that whoever trusts in him will never perish but has eternal life. We thank you for your grace gift. We ask that you bless this message. Have your spirit guide us. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. The Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, Part 93. This whole uh, series really is gelling together, I think. And uh, recently we've been more on sanctification, as you know. And while they're all intimately related, salvation and sanctification, experiential sanctification is what we're talking about, which is kind of like living, living in your salvation every day. And to do that, what we've been hearing from the Spirit a few times is we must be ourselves in Christ. There's only one you. There's nobody else that can be you. You shouldn't want to be like anybody else. God made each of us very uniquely. And he, he, he wants to show Satan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring myself glory with all of these sinners. All of them. With all their variety of weaknesses and all their variety of issues. And I mean, why do you think God made so many of us and made us each one uniquely? And yet God wants us to be ourselves in Christ as well going forward. As we even embrace or boast about our weaknesses. So it's all the grace of God that is performing things in us. So we must realize God doesn't want us to try to be like anybody else. He wants us to stop subtly comparing ourselves to others, especially when we see someone that's more whatever, more beautiful, more smart, more mature, at least we think they're more mature, more strong. We have to stop subtly comparing ourselves to other people and other Christians. God looks forward to sanctifying you, the sinner saved by grace. You with your weaknesses. As another example of his grace in front of Satan's accusations. His plan is to make you into a trophy of grace. He's going to put you in a situation where you bring him glory and can only boast in him because of all the unique things he delivered you from. You. All the weaknesses he delivered you from. Or he performed grace in your life despite your weaknesses. And each and every one is a slightly different situation. And each and every one he's going to make bring glory to himself. Because we know we can't boast in ourselves when we look at our weaknesses. So it all comes back to having faith. Trusting God loves you and that he will complete the good work in you. We've been talking about trusting in the process. And when we follow Jesus Christ with a sincere heart, he will reveal all things to us at the proper time. That's really all we have to worry about. Following Jesus Christ with a sincere heart. God works all things together for good for those that love him, right? Our job is simple. He's not really asking much of us. He wants us to trust him to love him, and he performs the good work in us because we're following him. If we check our heart each and every day, God will do the rest. And as we've been seeing, he's waiting for humility and obedience, which frees him up to act on our behalf, to give us more grace. And God always gives us the grace first to enable us to do His will and to obey His commands. 
And he wouldn't ask us to do something he didn't empower us to do first. So we talked about this on Sunday, how grace always precedes fruit. God always, or will always, afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish a command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 12.9. We saw the example of Paul on Sunday, and God used Paul as a living example of what humility and faith looks like in a human being, living life. And we saw an interesting verse where Paul actually needed to boast to put the false prophets in their place. And, of course, he wasn't boasting in himself truly, but in all the amazing works that the Lord had done through him and for him by grace, in spite of his weaknesses. So turn your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians, but we're going to start this time in chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12. Remember, everything has context, right? And Pastor mentioned this on Sunday, but I just kind of went back because he mentioned it, and looked at chapter 11, and you see why he said what he did in chapter 12. We're just going to read a couple verses here, though. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve through 13. Paul writes, But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So these men were were boasting that they knew Christ and about other things, I'm sure, as well. And Paul's calling them out as false. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, look at chapter 12, verse 1. This is why Paul says, boasting is necessary though it is not profitable. But I will go on to to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he's talking about himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. That's a great verse, verse 5. He was boasting in what the Lord had done for him, right, and through him. That man, the one that went to heaven briefly and got to be taught and see things, but that was totally by grace. Paul knows he didn't deserve it, and that's why he says, I boast on behalf of that man. Maybe, we, maybe this is the new nature, we might say, but I'm not boasting on my own behalf, my old nature, for example, except in regard to my weaknesses, that God uses me despite my weaknesses. And that is grace orientation, my friends. Paul knew he was nothing without the grace of God. That's grace orientation. Just like Jesus said in John 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's grace orientation when you really believe that. So look at verse 6. He goes on to say, For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Notice that phrase, no one will credit me. Paul is avoiding creature credit. He's not, he doesn't want to take any credit at all on his own. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there's creature credit again, to keep me from exalting myself, it was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, 
I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, that's a wonderful picture of grace, the grace-oriented attitude. And again, the point on the board, grace precedes fruit. God will always afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish a command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence of, or in the presence and sufficiency of grace. So from this passage in 2 Corinthians 12, it's fair to conclude Paul's heart is grace-oriented. On the board, Paul, Paul understood that power is perfected in weakness. He accepted that, in other words. To the degree that he persistently fulfilled his mission in the face of obscene adversity, even from those in his own flock at times. But that's grace orientation. We also noted Paul was a man of courage. Even in the face of his weaknesses and his own failures, he had the courage to press on towards God's will and obey God's leading in all of his missionary work. I mean, just think about that for a minute. To face your weaknesses, to admit your weaknesses, your failures, to even at times be discouraged by your weaknesses, it takes courage to press on by faith in God's plan for you. It takes faith. Sometimes in the face of our weaknesses, we become faint-hearted. But that is the flesh whispering to us that we're not good enough to follow God, that we're insufficient. But when we choose to live in the new nature, in His grace, we're more than sufficient. And we must accept our weaknesses and even boast in them as Paul did, because they will reveal the power of God even more in our lives. You know, it's almost like it, the greater the magnitude, the better, and this doesn't mean go out and sin to make it look even better. All right? But as ugly as your weaknesses can be sometimes, and your failures and all that, and, and admitting those, that gives more credit to God that He's doing certain things in your life, right? You can only boast in God. And that's why it's probably a blessing in disguise that we keep the old sin nature after salvation, and that we have to battle in the spirit, in the flesh, and all that, because it keeps us humble, honestly. And even Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him extra humble, we might say. Because if anyone could exalt himself, it was Paul. But God said, no creature credit for you. Not, not going to happen. And that was grace. How many times do we think of a thorn in the flesh? And we all have them, different types maybe. But how many times do you think of the thorn in the flesh as grace from God? But Paul accepted it and realized that. So we must accept our weaknesses and even boast in them like Paul did because they will reveal the power of God even more in our lives. So again, regarding grace orientation, as pastors taught us for years, courage is really just another name for faith applied. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. So while Paul appeared boastful to his flock, he was actually exceedingly humble comparatively. As a result, he pressed on under all circumstances. Paul came to realize a supernatural result was developing in his life, as long as he kept moving forward in God's plan. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, what Paul realized is that perseverance in the face of adversity produced something great in him something supernaturally strong. Again, what Paul realized is that perseverance in the face of adversity produced something great in him, a supernatural fruit, if you will, something supernaturally strong. And we all have this opportunity by grace 
The opportunity to persevere is there for any believer to take. God offers it to all. Each of us have already been qualified by God to share in the inheritance by His grace on the day of our salvation. So what Paul realized is what we should realize in our own lives. Go to Romans 5, verse 3. And let's see what Paul realized was a beautiful, supernatural fruit that God was producing in him through perseverance. Romans 5.3 And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. We're going to go to James chapter 1 in a minute. Okay, I want you to notice the similarity of these passages. They're almost they're mirror images, almost, almost every word, but different words are used to describe the same thing. Okay, So just keep that in mind for a minute. Look again at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance... Proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Perseverance produces fruit in a believer. This is what Scripture tells us. This is plainly stated theology right here in Romans 5. What fruit do we see? That perseverance produces proven character. And that proven character produces hope in us stronger and stronger each time we go through tribulation. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, every time you go through tribulation, the gold, your gold bar is going through the fire and slag is coming off, more is coming off, more is coming off, right? Each and every time it's getting more and more purified, more and more pure, more and more proven character, all right? Stronger and stronger hope. But only because of the tribulation that we willingly go through and accept and persevere through. So that's all beautiful fruit in our souls. And where does that start from? In Romans 5.3, where does it start from? Tribulation. To test our faith, to build it. And that gives us the opportunity for perseverance and the fruits after that. So on the board, what is perseverance? Isn't it a repetitive, consistent faith? A faith that doesn't give up hope but presses on one day at a time like Paul did? Isn't that really what God's asking of us, to press on in the faith each day? And if perseverance is by faith, then that means it's not of ourselves. This means to persevere is not for the intelligent, it's not for the capable, it's not for the strong, it's not for the whatever. It means perseverance is available to everybody. Because faith is available to everybody who's humble. And this is part of the beauty of God's grace plan. Anyone can do it. Anyone can persevere. By faith. So we should rejoice in that, as we'll see coming up. And in fact, the Greek word for perseverance in Romans 5 means cheerfully endure cheerfully endure. And that's what hope alludes to, if you think about it. If you truly have hope, you have a positive expectancy of God working things out in your life. If it's not a positive expectancy, it's not really hope. Okay? We're not talking about wishful thinking. We're talking about hope, which in the Greek means confident expectation. Positive. God wants us to Live life 
with a positive attitude. Not because of our own ability, because of Him. Because we, we really believe how He can work in our lives and that He loves us. So again, perseverance means to cheerfully endure. So we live life positively. Hope is positive. It's not drudgery. It's not pressing on in some kind of despair in your heart. That, not that kind of pressing on. It's pressing on because of the hope set before you. It was Jesus Christ who conquered death. So let's not mistake Paul's attitude for any kind of drudgery. He was positively expecting God to come through for him even after some horrible adversities. He just got up, dusted himself off, and walked forward in the plan of God. But back to the point the Spirit's making right now, which is that perseverance is available to everybody. Perseverance is for the weak, for the poor, for the brokenhearted, for the uneducated. And hopefully we all admit we fall into these categories. If we're humble, we know that. So we can all persevere. That's the good news. Every single one of us. Perseverance is a product of God because it spawns from faith in the first place, which, as we know, is a gift from God in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Therefore, it's available to all who are humble. So we can all persevere because it's by grace. It's through faith. Go to Romans 15, verse 5. We saw this on Sunday too. Just like God gives faith, God gives perseverance. If we're humble, if we ask Him, but it's a product of God. Look at verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. God gives Perseverance and encouragement. God gives perseverance and courage, which again is where encouragement comes from. He gives these things to the believer because it's to his glory. And our good father above listens to his children who ask him. It's amazing. All we have to do is ask, and we don't. Let's see what the Lord said about persistently asking the Father in heaven right after he taught the disciples how to pray the right way. Go to Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Luke eleven five. So this was right after the Lord taught them how to pray to the Father, what, what you know, many call the Our Father prayer. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, don't bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, now remember, this is right after he taught them the Our Father prayer, right? Pray like this. He says in verse 9, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. This is talking about persistence, folks. This isn't like a one-time ask. So there's a reason that God wants us to persistently pray and persistently ask and seek and knock. Maybe it's building proven character or something like that. I don't know. Be persistent with your Heavenly Father is the message. He loves to hear that type of faith. 
one with constant hope in him. Constant hope in him. Like a child that won't give up. How about the widow who persisted with the ungodly judge? The judge eventually listened to her, even though he didn't care about her at all. And the Lord used this as another example. She wasn't smarter than everybody else. She wasn't rich. She wasn't well-known with connections in the legal department or in the courtroom to get the way she wanted. She just persisted. So she's a great example of how anybody can have persistence. It's by grace through faith. Go to Luke 18, verse 1. Here's a parable that the Lord uses as an example. And, and he tells us straight out why, why he's telling this story in, in 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that all, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? An interesting ending. He says, God will answer you. God will bring you justice. If you cry to him, in verse 7, day and night, he'll bring about justice quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that type of faith on the earth? In other words, will the Lord find this type of persevering faith in his children? A continual, repetitive faith, if you will. The answer is probably no. Not in most, anyway. Sign of the end times. But the type of faith that goes back to God daily and asks for protection or, or deliverance, like the widow did, that's what God's after in his children. So I say, let it be in us who are listening right now. Let's gird up our loins and say, I'm not going to be wishy-washy, and I'm not going to give up and walk through life like a zombie because God's not answering my prayer yet. I'm going to be a persistent believer. I'm going to have faith that he's going to answer me in his timing, and I'm going to ask him day and night. God loves it. Let us not be the ones that don't find, that he doesn't find that faith on the earth when he comes. Let us walk continually in a manner worthy of him. How? Persistence. Persistent faith. Continually asking him and trusting him. Never giving up hope. God loves it. What father doesn't love that in his child? That constant trust, hope, confidence in their father. So because by his grace we are children of the king, the king tells us to keep on asking. But will he find that kind of faith in us when he comes back? It depends if we're humble enough to lean on his grace every day, aggressively. And it's between each of us and the Lord. 
God is looking for cheerful endurance in his children, persistent faith that clings to hope daily. Again, I say let it be in us who are listening right now. Let's make the decision. Change your perspective and be like the widow. So back to Paul as our example. Paul's humility, faith, and grace orientation were things to behold. We see the power of God working in his life. And this was largely because he pressed on under all circumstances. He persisted. He got stoned to death. And the Bible says he got up and dusted himself up, uh, off and walked on to the next city. He didn't sulk. He didn't say, oh me, oh my. He didn't say, please tend to my wounds. He had persistent faith in the power of God in his life. He had persistent hope that this was part of God's plan. Here we are complaining when we get bit by a mosquito. He got stoned to death, and he pressed on. Awesome example. So this is what we might call living by faith. This is what Paul called living by faith in Romans 1.17. And that's, that's what instigated this thorough discussion on experiential sanctification. Right? The righteous man will live by faith. Faith in who? Faith in what? To live by faith, faith must properly be placed. Why is faith so powerful? It's because of who it's in. Paul lived by faith, not in himself. It was faith in the Lord that gave him courage. It's faith in the Lord that gives us courage. Because we see him, we see what he can do. We know what he can do. It's trusting in his power and his love, and we can go on and on. His perfection. That's what gives us courage. Because he promises to fulfill all of his promises. It's what he does. And this same king of ours tells us to ask persistently. So it's who our faith is in. And that is the perfect God-man, the one with perfect love. Reliance on him, aggressively leaning on him and his grace, is what gives us courage because of who and what he is in our lives. So we can walk forward. We can press on by faith with tremendous perseverance and hope. It's because of who we have by our side, even in the darkest of circumstances. So Paul's perseverance, don't forget what it was motivated by. It was motivated by love. Just as the Lord's persistence was motivated by love. So much so, Paul figuratively went through labor pains of childbirth for his straying sheep. So this is a reminder that love is the greatest of motivations in this life, says Scripture. On the board in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 in the NIV, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That love, that, the fact Christ died for us and went to the extremes he did, that's what compels us. That crazy kind of love compels us, motivates us. And it motivated Paul. So back to Paul's labor pains, which he willingly submitted to out of love for God and God's people. In Galatians 4.19, he said, My children, with whom I am again in labor, which means to suffer childbirth pains until Christ is formed in you. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's willing, folks. Like, did Paul have to worry about his children so much? Did Paul have to tend to them as much as he did? Why didn't he just say, ah, I'm fed up with these guys. I'll go find some new ones, right? Like what he always was doing, missionary work, building new churches. 
but he chose to undergo labor pains for his children. He chose to be in their face when he needed to be in their face because he loved them. When he saw they were doing wrong, he said, I'm going to be in your face. And you know what? You guys are really, this is painful. Between the attacks you're throwing on me, between your disobedience, even your lack of love for me, this is painful. But I'm not giving up on you until Christ is formed in you. Paul persevered under immense pressure for the same reason Jesus did for others. Even when those same people forsook him personally. As Pastor said on Sunday, this is the hallmark of a true soldier of Christ. They persist under pressure. Not perfectly, but consistently. It's their lifestyle. Now, James also gives us a wonderful explanation of persistence and how to be joyful in that process. Go to James chapter 1, verse 2. And remember, we went to Romans 5, verse 3. This is largely a mirror image of what's being said in Romans 5, 3, 4, and 5. And you can always go back and compare it later on if you want. James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's a beautiful fruit right there. Rejoice, have hope, and be thankful. The testing of your faith produces endurance or persistence, and God loves it. Satan hates it, God loves it, and anyone can do it because it's by faith. And in verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God promises to complete the good work in us, right? We've been over that verse a while. God will complete the good work in us. So in verse 4, all you did was endure. All you did was have faith, which is a gift of God. Let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, watch God work out things in your life simply because you endure, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the process is working. The process is going on. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. But God is always at work in you, even when you're your most miserable or your most faithless even. He's working in you. But yet if you persist, you open up the doors for God to do things in your life in humility. God is changing us into the image of His Son. And we have to trust in the process and have joy and peace in our hearts as we persevere. Because that's a beautiful fruit. Persistence and endurance in itself. So here's what we've learned this past week, and also the emphasis on today's message too, on the board, regarding the proof of your faith. It requires testing. For example, by fire. What is faith untested. In other words, what kind of proof is there going to be on the other side if faith isn't tested? What kind of show is there going to be? What kind of gold, what kind of fruit is going to come out the other side unless faith goes through the fire? Tribulation brings on perseverance and perseverance hope or proven character. We could combine these two verses actually. But we must be tested. It's so, it gives the opportunity for value to appear, for the faith to be worth something in the invisible realm. Faith reveals its value when tested. And in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. So it's an opportunity. And if you think about it, only testing will produce perseverance. Do you have to persevere if everything's hunky-dory? If life's a bed of roses or whatever, do you have to persevere? Or do you have to persevere when things are 
against you. People are against you, obviously. But that is the opportunity. In Romans 5, it said, Tribulation brings about perseverance. So it's when we don't get what we want or even need that we persist, even in asking the Father for help. I mean, listen, you're, you're in God's plan. You're, if you're a believer, you've been entered into the invisible warfare. You've been entered into the trial, so to speak. So your life is different now. You have a divine calling. You have an eternal purpose, right? So you've been called into the midst of the fray on God's behalf. So don't compare yourself with unbelievers that, you know, seem to have a quote-unquote good life. As David said, that's their heaven now, but he knows, you can know what their judgment's going to be. Look at yourself as different. You're unique, you're new, you're a new nature, you're a new creature. You are now a soldier of Christ, you're in the battle. And God says, here's your opportunity. And that's why I'm going to allow tribulation in your life. That's why I might even give you a thorn in the flesh at times, because you need it. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to thank me, and you're going to see the fruit that comes from the tribulation, the perseverance, the hope, the proven character. And I'm going to work it all together for good. And you're going to be sanctified even before you die to my glory. So we should actually thank God when we don't get what we want. We should thank Him as part of our prayer life because that is producing something beautiful in us called persistence. And that's beautiful faith in the Father's eyes. So this is all granted to the humble person, the one who really wants to submit to and know God. We talked about on Sunday the humble, repentant heart. If we truly fear God, we are overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. This is the precursor to repentance that leads to salvation. And nowhere in Scripture is it suggested that believers lose their sense of fear and repentance. It should continue on. We know in Romans 1, verse 18 through 32, that reveals what a lack of fear and respect for God looks like. And that is the cause of a lack of repentance. But we've seen in the past, Scripture tells us fear and repentance are lifestyles that continue for the true believer. They're healthy, in other words. It's the right perspective. Peter had it when he repented of his sinfulness on the fishing boat. And that led to him having that attitude for years as a believer, even maturing by persistence years later. So again, the humble, repentant heart. Peter had faith, as in Luke 5, on the fishing boat when he fell to his knees before the Lord. And the proof of that faith, 1 Peter 1.7, is worth much more than anything he hauled into the boat that day. His faith was increased, as were others that were probably even watching. And even afterwards, he left everything and followed Jesus. And he persisted. He lived in that faith and that repentance. We're talking about things of eternal value. We're talking about things that really uh, are going to last and that matter in God's eyes. We're building our treasure in heaven. Peter built his treasure in heaven when he fell on his knees and he left everything and followed him. And he persistently followed the Lord despite all of his foot-in-mouth moments. He never quit on the Lord. He never lost hope in who the Lord was. Even after he denied him three times and he wept bitterly after that, he came back. He's like, I know the Lord. I know his heart. I know, I know his forgiveness. I'm going to have hope in him. So we're talking about eternal things and building our treasure in heaven, not on earth. These are some of the fruits produced by perseverance. And God is very happy for these things. 
And the Lord will continually give us more and more faith to persist if we ask Him for it in humility. Remember, humility is aggressive. And this is a good example. The widow kept going back to the judge who didn't give a darn about her. She kept going back and back and back and back. Humility is aggressive. Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it'll be open to you. The Father is waiting and looking for that fruit of faith. And he loves every minute of it, but we have to ask. Will he find that type of faith on the earth when he comes back? Not in the majority. On the board, we saw on Sunday, comparing Luke 5 to 1 Peter 1, 7. Jesus never stopped strengthening the faith of his disciples from beginning to end. Likewise, he never stopped strengthening our faith in time. Faith does the job of overcoming our fears, fruit of the flesh, so that we get out of the way. All right, that's what I think of when I see this phrase. Faith does the job of overcoming our fears. What, what's the biggest thing that gets in the way? Fears. We talked about this in the men's conference. What does fear do when you're in a war, wartime situation, when you get bullets coming at you? Fear disorients you. It disorients you. Satan's like, let me get them spinning, walking in circles for a couple minutes so I can slide by or whatever, so that they don't live by faith and go forward. So faith does the job of overcoming our fears, which is the fruit of the flesh, so that our inherent desire to obey, which we really want to do, we really want to fight, the good fight, the fruit of the new creature, that may perform in our life unrestrictedly in and through us. And the Spirit is our helper in all of this. How, is, how are we going to obey God in the new creature, perform as a good soldier of Christ, unrestrictedly, if we're living in fear. Right? Can't do it. But faith gives us courage. And we persist, we go forward. Even though we're, quote-unquote, scared, we go forward. Because by faith we say, I know the one I serve. I know he can protect me through anything. If he's ready to take me, awesome. But he can certainly protect me through this, so I'm not going to have fear. And then faith allows you to perform unrestrictedly in the new nature. Simple, isn't it, really? All he's asking for us is humility and faith. And the Spirit's right there helping us through the whole thing if we ask. So we also saw one of the most beautiful fruits that can be in a believer's soul as proof of your faith, expounding on 1 Peter 1.7. Among the greatest fruit for a true believer is their eternal security. Jesus said, I lost not one in John 18, 9. That sense of security that God wants us to have, knowing that you've been saved, is among the basic or the most basic fruit in your soul. And it is fruit because it's a gift given by God to you. And it has become part of who you are in the new creature. The new creature is assured of its destiny, and the Spirit confirms it in verses like 1 John 3.24 and 4.13. Thank God for His reassurances to us as believers, and that His faithfulness is perfect to the one who believes. To know and understand that we cannot be snatched from His hands is a wonderful fruit to possess. And all this goes back to receiving the fullness of God's grace in our lives. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, if you're grace-oriented, then you walk by faith in a manner worthy of your calling and a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're grace-oriented, like Paul was in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. If you're grace-oriented, you'll walk by faith in a manner worthy of your calling, and in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To be sanctified, one has to live in the gospel reality, which means living your life by grace through faith. 
It's not a game. It's not like a theory we subscribe to, a philosophy of life that you hold to. It's actually living a life, going out there and actually living it by faith. Faith in the Son of God. That's what gives us courage. And then great works are accomplished in our lives by His power and grace. Just like in Paul's lives. As we saw on Sunday, there are distinctions. There are those who actually walk by faith and those who have an incomplete faith in a way that says that walking by faith is the right way to walk. But it's one thing to mentally assent to that. It's another to live it. The righteous man will live by faith. The question that most people ask when seeing that verse is what does it mean to live by faith? To live by faith means to walk forward in some act of life. Just like all the Hall of Fame believers did in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Noah did this. What did they do? Unbelievable things. Crazy things. Where they risked their own lives, you know, had other people to protect or whatever. They walked it. To live by faith means to do some amazing things because you have faith in the Son of God. To live by faith means walking into something or stepping out by faith. You actually have to step out of your own doorway. You know what I mean? Visually, you want to look at it that way? You have to step out of your own house, your own comfort zone. Otherwise, you're not actually having faith. If there's no tribulation, where's, where's the need for faith, right? So living requires doing. It, it requires doing. You're not actually living unless you're doing something. And doing in God's plan requires faith. Because then all the boasting is on Him, not on yourself. So we were reminded that each of our lives has its own context. We each have our own plan to walk in, our own calling from God. Similar but different. And at times, you might have said to another believer, why did they do that? I know, you've never said that, right? Why did they do that? That doesn't seem right. And then you find out what they just went through in their life, and you go, oh. And you take your big foot out of your mouth. What are we talking about there? We're talking about context. You don't know the context of somebody else's life. That's why you can't judge anybody else. They don't know the context of your life. Each and every one of us is different, which is why no one has the right to judge, but also no one else can live your life for you. No one else can tell you the right thing to even do in your life because it's your life. You know the full context. I don't. Pastor doesn't. God wants you to make your own decisions he looks at your heart between you and him. He wants you to step out by faith and live your life in your own context and not worry about what other people think. And this is why we study the importance of context in interpreting parables. What was going on back then? When you understand the context of a parable, then you're like, oh, now it makes sense, right? Otherwise, it's like, you start speculating, you start jumping to conclusions. And we talked about that, you know, regarding reading parables. Imposing contemporary culture on a parable will inevitably result in errant conclusions. So you can't speculate what the context was. You have to find out what the context was to have it make sense. Speculation is always bad when it's taken as theology. If you don't get it, then you've probably just missed it. If it's not plainly apparent, don't take it upon yourself to construct something that's not there. And again, I, I've been seeing this in the Bible studies a little bit. A little too much speculation. Oh, well, he must have meant this. Well, it doesn't say that at all in the verse. Do we have the right to jump to that conclusion? As it says in Romans twelve sixteen, do not be wise in your own estimation. 
So, I gotta pick a place to spot. Uh, to what? Spot? Close. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. We only got five minutes left. 1 Corinthians 1.18. We read this verse on Sunday because we were talking about how Jesus and the apostles despised the arrogant intellectual Pharisees, right? That was the context of most of these parables. That was the scene going on that the Lord was protecting them from through the use of parables. And um, we can then understand better why they said what they said, why Jesus did some of the things he did. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't that an awesome passage? Great reminder of Paul boasting in his weaknesses, and not taking any creature credit. So I'd like to close with a couple of thoughts the Lord gave me on Sunday. We talked about Paul's love for his people and his willingness to persevere for their benefit and for the Lord himself. And we talked about how love gives. Love gives. And when it's spurned or ignored, love gives more. Contrary to human understanding. So I leave you with this question tonight. Is there anything more Persistent than God's love? Can you think of anything? Just think how much the Lord persisted all the way to the cross. It's unfathomable. But it was love that was the great motivation. And if that's our great example, can't we persist in the faith? Can't we persist in the faith of the one that persisted in love for us to his own detriment? Of course we can, if we're humble. And maybe that's why John said, we love him because he first loved us. The least we could do is have faith. Because he persisted in love to the point of death. Is there anything more persistent than God's love. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gifts of faith and even persistence and for giving us courage as well to walk day by day 
aggressively leaning on your grace. Help us to continue to ask and seek with great joy in our hearts, with a hope that gives us positive expectation. Help us walk by faith in that manner, Father, one day at a time, all to your glory, and we boast in you for everything you've done. And Father, help us bring this good news out to a lost and dying world that needs this so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.